It's the 22nd of May, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week on the podcast, women dominate in rheumatology, but not necessarily in salary. What's the downside of COVID, you ask? Beyond the financial? We know. And when can you finally go back to church and throw away the mask? Well, I think I have an answer for you. We're going to start with an interesting study from Annals of Rheumatic Disease. I thought it was interesting because I always thought Bichette's disease was sort of a struggle with colchicine. Doesn't work in my hands. Um, worry about steroids. Works, but gosh, too toxic. And thank goodness for the approval of a Primalast. Well, this report was an uncontrolled study of 15 patients with refractory Bichette's who were treated with, that's right, the IL-17 inhibitor secukinumab. Now, there is some biologic rationale for this, and IL-1223s have been talked about, and IL-17s have been talked about, IL-1 inhibitors have been talked about. Well, in this small pilot study of 15 patients, two-thirds of the patients had a complete response when they were given secukinumab. Now, they largely improved with regard to their mucosal manifestations and their articular disease, but gee, it looked pretty darn good. Uh, and if you follow them out, and that, that, by the way, two-thirds, nine out of 15, was within three months. If you follow them out to six months, 87% of patients improved. So they either received 150 or 300 milligrams a month. I think it's encouraging. Um, again, this would be off-label use. Um, and whether or not you can get away with that is sort of up to where you are and, and what you've been through. I think it's encouraging. Voltaren gel. What do you think? Is it real? Should we worry about it? Should we use it? And the great thing is it's a safe operation. I'm, I mean, I think why not use it, but uh, does it work? Well, the FDA just about a month ago uh, approved the over-the-counter availability of diclofenac topical or Voltaren gel. This new preparation is called Voltaren arthritis pain topical non-steroidal. You know, that, the drug was actually approved first in 2007 for the pain of osteoarthritis, and it's now available over the counter. My own belief is it doesn't really work all that much. I'll try it, um, but you know, for the one in five that, it resp that respond to it, great. The good news is it's not toxic at all. So I looked up some of the numbers on uh, efficacy and the number needed to treat is about five, as much as nine. That means you gotta treat five people before one gets a clear-cut advantage, or nine before one gets a clear-cut advantage. It's about in line with what I see in my practice. The number needed to harm is thankfully about one in 50, or the NNH is 50, so that suggests it is fairly safe. It's out there, congratulations. Uh, two studies on Stills disease I think that are interesting. One was from Annals Rheumatic Disease, an uncontrolled 14-patient report of patients who met Yamaguchi criteria for adult Stills disease who had refractory disease, and they were treated with tofacitinib. Now, we've hinted before that JAK inhibitors may be helpful in Stills disease in kids or in the MAS associated with Stills disease. In this particular study of 14 patients, 7 out of 14 half had a complete response, and 6 out of, six out of 14 and had a partial response. It seems like this might be a reasonable option, and we need to see clinical trials, well-designed clinical trials. The problem is, 
doing clinical trials and stills disease, I can't imagine any of the manufacturers of a JAK inhibitor will go after this, but it would be a good orphan drug indication in my opinion. There's another interesting study from clinical rheumatology that mirrors some other data that's out there. Their study was on patients with um, Stills disease, mostly these were kids, 57 kids with systemic JIA, and they actually did some gene testing and showed that there was a fair number of patients that actually had the MEFV gene associated with familial Mediterranean fever uh, variant, uh, and having that actually increased the odds of getting Stills disease. So the idea here is that there are some patients who have clear-cut Stills disease, but if you did gene testing on them, you might find some of the other auto-inflammatory genes that um, are out there. And the question is, is it worth doing? I don't know it's worth doing. It's kind of hard to get, but if you can do gene testing and your patient has atypical Stills, either in a kid or an adult, I would thoroughly encourage you to do gene testing and look into Invitae, I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. You can get a cash a gene profile for as little as $75 to $100. Patient pays, you get the results fairly quickly. Um, it might figure well into your management or diagnosis of someone who has a febrile disorder. There was a recent uh, JAK inhibitor safety review, uh, and this actually comes from the GI literature, gastroenterology, and they looked at a meta-analysis of 82 studies, 66,000 patients with either RA, IBD, uh, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, or AS, and showed pretty good numbers. No mortality risk. Um, showed that the risk of an SIE uh, is, you know, fairly reasonable. Not to not uh, what is it now? The SIE number is 2.81 for 100 patient years, and the risk of herpes zoster is a little bit lower than that's been in the literature before, and that is a 2.67 for 100 patient years. Again, your risk, you out there, is about five to 10 per thousand. That would be 0.5 to 1.0 per 100 patient years. Early data on JAK inhibitor associated zoster events were as high as 45 per thousand, but seemed to be lower if you did some pairing down according to, you know, a, a US population, mostly white, not on steroids, it could be as low as 25. That's kind of what this number is, 25 per thousand or 2.67 per 100 patient years. Overall, it showed that JAK inhibitors were associated with about a 57% increase in the risk of zoster, a relative risk of 1.57. Uh, women in specialties in medicine, well, it turns out the highest percentage of women in medicine uh, is seen in OBGYN, 58%. Pediatrics, 59%. Third on the list, rheumatology, 54% of of trainees going into rheumatology are women, and that's good news. Uh, the interesting thing is that still, when you look at just specialty medicine, um, men still make about 31% more than women with an average salary of 375,000 compared to 286,000 in women. These numbers come from the recently published Medscape profile on salaries and income in medicine. You can look that up, it's in the link that we have associated with this particular report that I focus just on women. Um, I put up another report this week about critically ill rheumatic disease patients, patients who go into the ICU and what their outcomes are. You know, I don't really like studies like this. It's kind of a hodgepodge, although the numbers are large, 525 critically ill patients, but includes 25% with vasculitis, 22% with lupus, 19% with RA, etc. 
you know, but I still think it might be worth reviewing the data. They were admitted to the ICU with either shock, 41%, respiratory failure, 32%, infection, almost 40%, disease flares, 35%. Predictors of mortality were age, steroids, mechanical ventilation. So for those of you who don't go to the hospital very much, these are the factors that you might need to worry about your patients being older on steroids who end up being intubated, not, not, not a good outcome. You know, how does this compare to what we're seeing now with COVID, the real bad predictors for critical outcomes with COVID, still age, comorbidity, the presence of um, uh, high IL-6 levels, presence of D-dimers have recently been shown to be significant risk factors. We published that um, based on a New York City um, experience of those who had COVID and had critically ill disease and were hospitalized at two New York City hospitals. So what else is going on with COVID? What are the effects of COVID? Well, a Medscape survey showed that there's been about a 55% drop in revenue <clears throat> with COVID and that there's been a, about a 60% drop in patient volume. Uh, maybe more scary is that 44,000, 43,000 uh, healthcare workers were laid off in March and that 9% of medical practices closed during the COVID era. This is sort of scary. This is the downside that we're going to see more of in the months to come and how we are going to deal with it as a specialty is going to be a challenge. We need novel thinking. If you have a good solution, you should share it, write an article about it, publish it, do some research on it. Uh, other downsides to COVID came out in yesterday's New England Journal where they talked about um, myocardial infarction hospitalization rates during the COVID era. So they compared uh, hospitalizations for myocardial infarctions to hospitalization rates prior to March of this year and showed that during the COVID era, MI hospitalization rates are down about 40%. Uh, and that's sort of scary, but this is going to a conversation that you're hearing more of. What's the downside of being shut down and locked down where people are not leaving their homes and not going in for routine medical care or even worse, life-saving medical care like myocardial infarctions or chemotherapy or um, cancer management or um, breast cancer management. Uh, even dental care is way, way down right now and what the cost to society is going to be to control these other problems and during the COVID era is going to be kind of scary. So, you know, and the other interesting thing you might have heard this week during the Tuesday night rheumatology with uh, Peter Nash and uh, Philip Robinson from Australia talking about even though the numbers of COVID uh, infections and deaths in Australia are very, very low, we have more in Texas than they have in uh, Australia the effect on their society has been pretty much the effect like it's been with you, as it's been with me, as it is in New York City. Everybody's not going out, everybody's following the rules, practices have been uh, tremendously impacted, everyone switched to telemedicine, even in places where, again, COVID is not that big a deal like it is in New York City, for instance. So, uh, again, we need to be thinking along these lines about the other downstream effects of COVID. Um, and CDC put out an interesting report this week in MMWR about uh, 92 attendees in an Arkansas church during the month of uh, during March 6th through 11th 
that 38% of those 92 people developed laboratory-confirmed COVID infection. Three people died. The highest attack rates were in um, the elderly, uh, over 50%. So this data is a little bit like what we reported last week, where we talked about choir practice, 61 people, and 53 to 87% of people became COVID positive. Three hospitalized, two died. Point being, getting together in groups, especially singing groups or people mouthing off or yelling, like at sporting events, might be still a hazardous thing uh, to consider as everyone's trying to open up. Um, I put out a tweet this week because I've been reading a lot about the hoaxes and conspiracy theories about COVID. This is not a conspiracy. This is not a hoax. This is not, you know, the man on the moon, 9-11 hoaxes that people like to write about. Again, the problem with these kind of con, um, conspiracy theories is that you really, they're falsehoods that you really can't disprove. They're based on a modicum of facts. There's a video out there called the pandemic. It, it's a it's a total hoax, but it tries to question um, the COVID-19 crisis and the people behind it as being those who will capitalize on this financially. We have 93,000 deaths from COVID-19 right now in the United States, and that's in less than three months. Um, this is not a coax, folks. I think people still need to be vigilant in their practices, such as, you know, social distancing, physical distancing, hand washing, and wearing masks. I don't know if you saw the report uh, this week from New York. Governor Cuomo said, you know what, wearing PPEs does work because evidence comes from frontline workers, the essential workers in New York City and New York State, where those individuals, nurses, uh, firemen, EMTs, uh, um, the police force, transit workers, all who are practicing with PPEs, and not like, you know, full garb and whatnot, just masks for the most part, that they have lower rates of COVID positivity than does the general population in either New York City or New York State. So, for instance, um, uh, NYPD uh, positivity rates are 10.5%. Uh, um, EMTs and fire departments, 17%, but almost 20% of the of the New York population is COVID positive based on recent testing. So again, these are data that you can point to for those who are saying, ah, it doesn't work or, oh, I don't really need it. It does work uh, and should be strongly advocated until this whole problem has gone away. Lastly, there's a report that um, we tweeted last week, we published this week, about the use of anakinra in patients with severe pulmonary uh, COVID. This was a, a consecutive patient study. It was published in, in Lancet Rheumatology. 29 patients who received anakinra consecutively for the treatment of non-ICU, but nonetheless pulmonary, severe pulmonary ARDS with COVID. They were on background therapies. 29 received anakinra. They compared them historically to 17 patients who did not receive uh, Anakinra, and the outcomes were strongly in favor of Anakinra. So it's a fairly loosely uh, loosely controlled study, but it showed that deaths were only 10% with Anakinra, 44% in the control group. That improved CRP and pulmonary function seen in 72% of the Anakinra treated patients, but only 50% of the control group, suggesting that there is a good rationale to using IL-1 inhibitors in patients with severe disease. 
again, there's some anecdotal evidence so far about the use of IL-1 inhibitors and IL-6 inhibitors and baricitinib. We don't have the control clinical trial data. Moreover, we don't have data uh, of these interventions in patients where it's really needed the most, and that would include those with the cytokine storm syndrome. But again, those trials are in progress. We'll look forward to seeing them. Speaking of cytokine storm syndrome, next week's Tuesday Night Rheumatology Grand Round Series features uh, Dr. Randy Cron, who is really well known for his work in MAS and cytokine storm syndrome. He's going to be talking about the cytokine storm. Randy's from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, has got a number of publications on this um, uh, topic. I think it's going to be a real interesting hour. That's Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. PST. Make sure you register, tune in. We'll, be, we'll have a really lively Q&A session with Dr. Cron. That's it for this week on the podcast. Go to the website. You can find these links uh, to these interesting reports and more. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your families. Take care.